0: Thank you. Thanks for praying, Roger. If you guys wanna take your Bibles and turn to uh, Genesis. It's like we're getting spoiled as we open up our Bibles (laughs) because there's no looking for that really. So right in the beginning, Genesis chapter two, we'll be looking at verses 18 to 25 this evening. I wonder, have, have any of you ever played Jenga? Growing up, maybe it's like from my generation, you have like a stack of blocks. You take a block from the bottom, you put it on top. That's like, and they say it over and over again in the commercial, and it's stuck in my brain forever, right? But uh, you know, as you're taking it, you don't want to ever take a block from the very bottom, because if you take a block from the very bottom, you're starting to like mess up that foundation, and it's going to come crashing down. And so as we're, as we've been talking about Genesis in the beginning, Genesis one and two, we're building like biblical foundation, a biblical worldview in which we think through things. And you think, what is our, our foundation and our, and what's our life? What's our society built on? If you think of that game of Jenga, you think about all the things that we've learned so far as we've been going through Genesis one and two, that God is creator. He made all things. And if, if our society had that game of Jenga, it's like that bottom that's, that's taken out. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. We're like, no. God made us for a purpose. We have a reason to live. That, that's been taken out. We're above the animals. No, that's taken out. Male and female, He made us. Taken out. He's defined what is good. He said, rest. Rest on the seventh day. No, work as hard and fast as you can. And even he said that work is good. Again, that would be taken out as well. Well, where are we going today? The thrust, the the point of the passage we're going to look at, the main point is marriage. And if you think of that Jenga block, building blocks of a society, if you take out marriage, watch it fall. Watch for all of those things. Everything being taken out one by another. That's maybe why we have the world that we have today. But I want us to see in time the importance of biblical marriage. On the sixth day of creation, God made marriage. It's an amazing thing. So I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be strengthened in your faith. And whether you're, you're, you know, you're single, you're, you're young, you're not thinking about marriage, I, I pray you'll be built up, you are married, uh, you'll be encouraged and blessed. So if you want to stand with me, we're going to look at Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord said, It is not good So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless his word to our souls this evening. You can have a seat. And now before going on any further, I'd just like to pray again. Holy Father, I I thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to proclaim it. God, and I I pray that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint my words, that you would uh, lift up the name of Jesus Christ, you'd lift up the glory of marriage, that we would see your good design in it, and you give us ears to hear, hearts that are open to your word, and do your work in us. uh, Through your word proclaimed now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when is this happening? We're jumping into the middle of day six. As we looked at uh, last week, uh, God had made Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed life into him. He brought him into a garden. God had made the garden. God had brought him in to work it. And he, he put two trees there. The one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, he told them not to eat from. So this is continuing on of day six. The biggest thing I want us to see is God made us relational beings. That's kind of the big thing. God made us relational beings. If you want to look at verse 18 with me again, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So now I just want to think like really broadly speaking before we kind of narrow down and just think of marriage. It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good. It's not as like a moral imperfection is in something bad, but it's not good as an incompleteness. Like when God made the sky, but before he put the sun, the moon, and the stars in it, that's not good. But when he put the sun, the moon, and the stars in, it was good. So that's what's happening, right? Because everything God made, it's good, it's good. On day six, it's very good. And so just to clarify, it just wasn't complete yet. But it's not good to be alone, Ecclesiastes, uh, four, nine to 12, well-known verse says this, two are better than one. We often hear this at a uh, wedding, but it's true of friendships, of relationships. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, three-fold cord is not quickly broken. It's not good to be lo- alone. I don't know about you, but this past season we've been in, have particularly pressed that upon my heart. You know, there's a time where we like, didn't meet people, and it's like, oh, everything's going on Zoom, and just for like half a moment, you're like, wow, Zoom. And a moment later, you're like, oh, Zoom. I don't know about you, I hear people like, hey, do a Zoom meeting? It's like, no, no, we won't actually. (laughs) At our house, we have this little plaque up on the wall, a little like wood carving that says, faith, family, and friends. And it's like, I kind of liked it before. I thought that was kind of neat. But then to have those things kind of removed and put off to the side and taken for a time, now I'm like, I absolutely love it. I see it and I'm encouraged, you know, like, I, I don't know when it first happened, like, hey, okay, everyone kind of stay at home. You can't see people. It's like, nah, you know, make the most of it. But then when we're allowed to kind of get back together again, we start to be in each other's homes and start to uh, just spend time with each other. I'm like, this is amazing. This is why we're created. We're created to be with other people. And I don't know about you, but like, uh, just having it taken for a time, man, it made me appreciate it so much more that I didn't before faith, family, friends, how important it is. We were made to be with others. God made us for a relationship. He made us, as we'll talk about later, relationship with him, but made us for a relationship with other people. Right. Even as we, as we gather in the church, we're supposed to practice the one another's, encourage one another, build up one another, exhort one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. You cannot do the one another's if you're not with one another. Right? Quite simply, even like a, a few weeks ago, you know, just the... the the fact of the matter, we meet in a soccer field and they needed the soccer field back. And so as we finished our, our worship, it's like, all right, and, and we got to go. And, and, and it was weird. It was like I went home that night and we didn't spend our time after visiting and chatting with one another. And I'm like, something was missing. Because we are made for a relationship. We are made to be with one another. And again, you know, even in our church, as, we, as people are coming and visiting and we're building relationships, like it takes time. It takes time to build friendships. It takes effort uh, to get to know one another and to build that. But what, that's what we are made to do. It's not good to be alone. Another way that we, we do that within our church, a significant way, is through our small group ministry. So we meet again during the weekend in our our homes and we spend time with one another. We open up the word, we pray for one another. And I would just encourage you if you're not in one and if you'd like to come talk to me and we could find a place to, to put you in because we're not meant to be alone. And that's another way that we can walk with one another with ever, whatever happens in life. So just like a big point of application, invest in friendships, relationships, Like, if you just think, like, actively, we need to actively pursue friendships, especially, I think, in North America. Maybe having it taken away, we're like, wow, we need that, but we're all so good at, like, I'm running this direction, you're running that direction, we're going this direction. And so we need to actually take time and effort to pursue friendships. And so I just, like, in terms of applying this, is there someone that you know you need to call or text? I don't know if anyone calls anymore. I'm joking, but uh you should so call or text someone, reach out to someone. It's quite like it's this simple. Make plans. Spend time with other people. Go somewhere, do something, eat some food. So that whoever you're calling or texting, go somewhere, do something and and eat some food. I just I don't know. I think if you throw food in there, it's a lot easier to to be together. <laughs> but try to apply that. We need to seek out friendships and relationships. It's not good to be alone, but we need to pursue that with each other. So whoever kind of came to mind when I was like, you need to call, you need to text that person. uh, Make sure you do that in the next few days. We need to pursue people, pursue friendships. It is not good to be alone. Looking back at Genesis 2.18, But we know the point of the text, though. It's not just about individuals, but I just want to point that out. Then The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. Other translations say uh, uh, someone suitable for him, someone corresponding to him. This isn't a negative term, making a helper for him. Uh, One commentator, Alan Ross, says this. God is usually the one described as the helper in scripture. Exodus 18, 4, Deuteronomy 33:7, 7, 1 Samuel 7, 12, Psalm 20, verse 2. The word essentially describes one who provides what is lacking in the man, who can do what the man alone cannot do. So it's actually, it's a, it's a positive thing there. But God's going to provide a helper for him. If you look at verse 20 at the end, it talks about there was not found a helper fit for him. It kind of tells the story. We're going to make a helper for him. But first, what do we have to see? We have to see God made us relational beings and animals don't fulfill that. God made us relational beings, but animals will not fulfill that. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. If you see the, the naming of the animals, it shows man's authority over the animals. The authority we see in, in Genesis 1:28 that God gave man authority over all the animals to have dominion over them, to subdue them. And so by naming them, he's showing his authority. You know, even as we name our children, we're sh- like these are our kids. We, we get the job of naming them. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought, like, how did he name all the animals? How do you have time to do it? I never actually have never thought of that question, but one commentator mentioned that if anyone's thinking, this is what he had to say. I thought it was pretty good. He said, the list of animals that Adam had to name was far from exhaustive. Scripture explicitly states that Adam named all the livestock, birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. There's no indication that Adam named the fish in the sea or any other marine organisms or insects. And even he named only a small subset of the kinds, not the broader definition of species. So there are probably only a few thousand animals involved. So maybe 20, he kind of did the math, 2,500 kinds of animals, five seconds per kind, five minute break every hour, under four hours. <laughs> I don't know. If you, I'm like, how did he do that? Okay, maybe that's how Adam did it. He did it. I've never thought, how did Adam name it? But there's one way it's described. But I think if you just picture this, Adam's here and God brought the animals here and he's like, name that one. That, okay, that, that one. And they're just like, I don't know if they're walking through, parading through. And what do you think Adam is thinking as this is going on? Well, one thing, it showed him his need for a companion. Right? If you think it, it made it clear, his need for a woman, also the desire for someone that's like him. Every animal that came by, it's like, that's not, that's not me. No, that's very different. Over and over again. Commentator Henry Morris says this, as one after another of the animals passed before him, no doubt in pairs, male and female, Adam could not help but be impressed with his own uniqueness, not only in intelligence and spirituality, but also in his aloneness. Each animal had its mate, but for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. Again, this also shows us every animal that passed by him shows that Adam is completely different. Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. None of these animals were. God made us relational beings and animals weren't going to cut it. And I just, I have to break it to some people that uh, do- a dog is not man's best friend. I'm sorry. If it was, it would have like, all right, Oh, there, there he is and let's stop. He's like, no, there's not a suitable helper found for him for all the animals. Whatever your favorite animal, if it's not a dog, pass through. That's not it. We are made for relation. Relationship. And it wasn't in the animals that we would find it. Looking again at verse, or continuing on in verse 20. I'm Sorry, 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, closed up its place with its flesh. I want to see here that God made its relational beings and made woman from man. Woman for man. You see how, how what the Lord did caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep? He was, he was out cold. He didn't need to see the operation. And as he was out, God had a plan. He knew it was best. I think it's maybe similar to what we find in Genesis 15. If you know the story, Abraham, as God's making a covenant with him, falls into a deep sleep. And, and so, some uh, commentators, I guess in the Hebrew, it just means out of the side, though we're like, we're like okay, I think it was a rib. He, he seemed to take a bone. But uh, one commentator, Sarfati, says this Only in recent times have surgeons discovered that the rib is the one bone in the human body that will readily grow back. I didn't know that. I don't know if you did. I wouldn't recommend maybe taking it out, but, but so God took out a bone, healed them up. And apparently this is the only bone that would grow back like that. That's that's amazing. But maybe it's like more amazing, but like God made a woman out of the rib. That's actually far more amazing. Uh, In verse 22, right? And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This word made, it means to build, construct, even fashion as befitting God's last creative act of creation week. Think about that. That woman made from the rib of a man was the last thing that God created. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to think on. Anytime I'm, I'm in this part of scripture, I have to read this passage, this old quote from a guy named Matthew Henry, he says this about God taking the rib from Adam, forming woman, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to, feet to be trampled upon by him, but made out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. And again, you're like, oh man, this, that's so hard to believe that God could like, You know, make a guy go to sleep and from his rib and make a woman. But no, if we read the first chapter, like he spoke the world into existence, right? The sun, the moon, the stars and everything. There are no animals. He spoke they're animals and they're very good. There's nothing in the sea. Now they're sea creatures. And so it's like that's if we believe that this is just this is something very small for the Lord. But this is how he did it. This is the amazing thing. How he made woman. What, what happens when Adam first sees, again, we don't have it named yet, uh, woman, as we know she's going to be called Eve. But look at verse 23, the first time that man sees woman. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not reading it correctly. I guess in the Hebrew, it's like there's excitement. This is the thing about it. this is the first time also in recorded scripture that man says anything. We have, he named the animals. We don't have recorded as he named them. The first time that man says anything in response to seeing a woman and he's excited. So it's more like, as he see, like this at last is bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. Like this excitement. But just think about that. The first time recorded scripture, it's because a man saw a woman. How? <laughs> Amen to that. That's kind of cool. So. He was excited about a girl. Poetry is used here. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is from me. She is like me. There's this play on the words here that the word woman and man are very similar. a footnote in my Bible, the words, Hebrew words for woman is ishah and the man ish. So there's this play on words that we can't see the poetic working there but this amazing excitement of Adam when he sees or man, when he sees the first woman. Now think about that. Not only um, was man created, then woman created from man, but then man also named woman. He he gave her the name, he named the animals and he named woman. Gordon Wenham says this, here the first man names the first woman in a similar fashion, though they are equal in nature, that man names woman indicates that she's expected to be subordinate to him. Do we see that in creation order? I'd ask you, does, does the order matter? Man was made and then God made woman from man. And I, and I would say it does, and I'd say it's significant, even if, if I'm just going to take you to a few places in the New Testament where they pick up on that. Uh, the first would be 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so just think about that in terms of submission. If in a, in a family home, if the husband's to be the head of the house, the wife's to submit to him, it's not talking about equality. Because if, if Jesus Christ is submit to the Father and they're equal, they're both God. Nothing's lessened by that. But Paul, uh, in this passage, if you look down at verse 8, His reasoning for this, that man would have an authority in his home, he says this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. If you look, just turn quickly uh, to 1 Timothy 2.12. It says, this. I know we're just touching those passages really quickly. I just want to show you that in the New Testament, as they are talking about even like roles in the home, they're looking back to creation order to define what that would look like. So first Timothy 2:12. this is talking about in a, ch- in a church setting. Paul wrote, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why verse 13 for Adam was formed first and then Eve and so this, this kind of, this rule for the church, we're called, we're complementarian in our church. So what that means, we believe God made man and woman equal, but with different roles to complement one another. And so even in, in our church leadership, we believe if we would read on that God has set aside certain roles in the church, one to lead as an elder, set aside for males, one is to preach and teach from this passage. Where do we get it from? Well, it's, it's in this text, but it's centered in creation order it's significant because this is before the fall. This is before everything got broken and messed up. This is what God has ordained. So order matters. But I also want you to really see this, that absolutely equal Genesis one, both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God equal yet having different roles and responsibilities. So go- going back to the text in Genesis so we, man and woman made equal yet different roles to complement one another. One will be a husband, one will be a wife. One will be a mother in the future, one will be a father. God made us relational beings. He created marriage for this purpose. I want us to continue to look in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And just verse 25, just mentioned, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is before the fall. This is before they ate the fruit. Everything was was going well. Everything was perfect. They were innocent. But again, looking there at verse 24, it begins with, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother Therefore, ladies, God's, God's plan, God's plan is marriage. On the sixth day, he defined it. The first human institution created by God was marriage. He's the one who came up with the idea on day six of creation. So we have marriage defined for us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We see here very clearly a marriage is between a man and a woman. I didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. God made it up and he defined what marriage would be. And so we don't get to redefine it. We don't get to change what it is because God has already defined that for us. You know, I, I could claim, like, I can fly. I can fly. And, and if I just jumped, I'm like, see, look, I, fly. I was flying. You're like, that's not flying. But no, no, I, I, that's actually flying. Like, no, is like when you take off, you're rising in the air. We don't get to just redefine things, but especially something so important as marriage. Again, that, that analogy thinking of Jenga, like if you're like, yeah, we can just take this and do it whatever we want, like the foundation of our society starts to crumble. God defined marriage between two people, a man and a woman. And in this, he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Leave his father and his mother. So we even see here, as you get married, you leave your, one, your family of origin and you go and you start a new family. This, this can be a challenge for newlyweds to start a a new family that belongs to your original family. And you're kind of like, where do I fit in? How does this work? And there's this weird dance of like the parents before are are no longer like, okay, their son or daughter is married. And and what's the interaction look like? But God's like, hey, yeah, no, you're to be separate and start afresh. Now you are a family unit and you are carrying on. Gordon Wenham says this. In a marriage, a man's priorities change. Beforehand, his first obligations are to his parents. Afterwards, they are to his wife. In modern Western societies where family duties are often ignored, this may seem a minor point to make, but in traditional societies like Israel, where honoring parents is the highest human obligation next to honoring God, this remark about forsaking them is very striking. But this this is God's plan. Leave your parents. Hold fast to your wife. And what does it say there at the bottom in verse 24? And they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Intimacy and in marriage is defined. Again, as we look at Genesis chapter one, God calls men and women, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And we, we see here in, in Genesis two, it's in the context of marriage. That we are to be fruitful and multiply again. So the world would say, Uh, No, you know, you can become one flesh, have that sexual intimacy anywhere, any place. God says, no, that's actually within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. That's, it's good. It's very good. And of course, we, we know sexual intimacy in the normal course of time produces kids. And kids are a gift from God. We talked about that before. We looked at be fruitful, multiply be fruitful and multiply. Again, the best place for children to grow up in is a family with a mother and a father. And I, and I know that's not the norm and I know there's many different ways in which people grow up. And I think God meets with us in that, but the best that he's created is to grow up with a mother and a father. And and all the statistics would tell us that there are many, many stats we could, we could look at, interesting in trying to find that though, it's, it's actually hard to, to find that research because it's almost, we don't want to admit how good it is for a man and a woman to be together in marriage and raise children. But the stats say that stats say that many for kids growing up in single parent families, there's many development problems. They tend to get lower grades. Their dropout rate is higher than their counterparts. They're more prone to various psychiatric illnesses, alcohol abuse, suicide attempts. Children living with both biological parents are 20 to 35% more physically healthy than children from broken homes. And, and the list could go on and on about the stats. And again, if that's not you, God can still be at work wherever you're at, whatever your background was growing up, but just showing you that his best, what he put forward, a man or woman to raise children. And all of our statistics would tell us that is true. The man and woman, they should, they shall become, come together in one flesh. I want to just point this out again. Again, knowing, you know, young kids that we have here, but sexual intimacy is good in the context of marriage. That's its, that's its rightful place. Again, I may have used this analogy before, but like water in its rightful place is good, right? You turn on the shower, water comes out. Man, that's a great thing. You want a cup of water, it's great. But if ever the pipes burst and the water goes where it's not supposed to, something that's very good and life-giving now becomes extremely damaging. And that sexual intimacy taken out of that context of marriage between a man and a woman. Very damaging, very hurtful. There's so many warnings in scripture about it. I'm just going to put a few before your eyes. Proverbs 5 to 7. It says, much. I just want to take a few. Proverbs 5 verses 3 to 5 says this. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to Death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Proverbs 6, 27 to 28. Just think about in terms of sexual intimacy out of the confines of marriage. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? There's all these warnings within the Old Testament, within Proverbs First Corinthians uh, six eighteen to twenty. I also want to bring that to your attention. First Corinthians six eighteen to twenty. It says this: "Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body." Is written to believers or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with whom you have been bought? With whom you have from God, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Flee from sexual immorality. There's all these warnings in scripture. Paul, before then, earlier on this letter, he says in verses nine to 11, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And maybe any of us can hear that. We're like, wow, what? Who can enter? But verse 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. If, if there's anyone here who is struggling with sexual sin and, and is not doing that within the confines of marriage and, and no, you're, you're sinning against God, but man, there's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ for any who would turn away and turn to him. He wouldn't turn anyone away, but there'd be mercy and forgiveness and grace. I just want to bring one more warning there from, from Scripture. First Thessalonians 4, 3 to 4. I don't know if anyone's ever like, what is the will of God? What's God's will for my life? This for sure is it. for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his or her own body and holiness and honor friends over and over and over again. There's these warnings in scripture to flee, to run, to turn. And again, that's not just necessarily talking about the physical act, but it could be with what we put in front of our eyes, what we have in our thoughts. We need to turn away. We need to run away. We need to ask God for forgiveness if that that is you. We need to repent and turn to Christ. So why am I hammering this home? Because God does all throughout the scripture. He says, this is good. Marriage between a man and a woman coming together is one. This is very good, but everything outside of it is a sin against the holy and righteous God. And it's damaging. So what God has made good in marriage, he defined it, and he gave us guardrails, and it's, it's for our good. Going back there to, to Genesis, I want us to see that permanency in marriage is defined. Where he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. This is God's intention. Hold fast, other translations, united or bonded, or the old translations, or even I guess the legacy, cleave, where it's like leave your family, cleave to your wife. And when, I don't know if anyone uses the word cleave, <laughs> but I guess this, this word, this, this word of hold fast, being united, yeah, the Hebrew word literally means to stick like glue. Like that's what marriage is supposed to be like. You come together and you, you're stuck together for good times and bad times in sickness and in health for richer, for poor, no one's going anywhere, right? That's God's good intention. Jesus in Matthew 19, three to six reiterated this, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read? He goes to scripture, right? He goes, that's where we want to go to scripture. What does God say? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male, made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds this that we often hear at weddings. So they are no longer two, but one flesh What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no one separate. No one come between that holy union of a man and a woman coming together. Even if they come together as one flesh, like a mingling of souls. But of course we we know it's sin broke this. We have this good intention, this pure plan from the Lord, but we know that sin entered into the world and we, we know of, maybe there's some among us here, broken marriages against sex, sexual intimacy outside of marriage, divorce. Friends, if you're struggling with that, if you're, if you're struggling in your marriage, I'd reach out to someone here in the church. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to help you walk through that. If you're struggling with some sexual intimacy, different things, and you want to turn from that, you want to turn to the Lord I love or someone else here, introduce, help you walk through that. There is mercy for sure. There's hard times. We have hard situations that they're wrestling through and maybe that's not going well in your marriage, but you know, God's good intention is that you would be, be together. As husband and wife. And you need to maybe bring other people into your life and help speak into that, help encourage you in that. Just want, want to let you know you're not alone. Reach out to someone because we see God's good plan. We know we're also dealing with a broken world, broken people, but God can be at work and he can help us walk through it. He can help you walk through it. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There's mercy and grace. But we can see here that marriage was God's plan between one man and one woman for life, friends. I want you to see. And then at the end of day six of creation, God says, "This is very good. Marriage is very good." Are you are you hearing that in society much? Like marriage is very good. Proverbs eighteen twenty two says, "He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord." Adam, right when he saw Eve. Or man, when he saw a woman, there she is, flesh in my flesh, bone in my bones. Like this excitement, man. Marriage is a good thing. Again, forget what you've heard. Forget what you're being told. The Bible says God created marriage in day six. and He says, very good. Amen. Amen. So we, we read this in the Bible. We see it. We should teach it to our kids. But in fact, our greatest witness to our kids, to our grandkids, to the next generation is our own marriage. For those who are married, I just want to exhort you, invest in your marriage. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. Right? If we're like, man, like those people over there, ah, I see what they're... Man, invest in your marriage. Pour into it. Of course, though, if, if you're, you're at the dome, the grass grass is always green. At the dome. <laughs> but just, just think about what are some ways that you we can poor invest in this all important relationship. Uh, a, fr- a friend mentioned today and I thought it was, it was actually bang on. So it says what we're to hold fast to our wife, right? We are to, they become one flesh with them. You know what it does not say? It does not say we should become one flesh with our phone, <laughs> So just one negative, one thing that we want to put away. Then we're going to talk about positive things we can kind of add to and pursue. I don't know about you, but my phone has never actually like built into my marriage really in a positive way. I don't know about you. These days I'm watching so many YouTube videos, so many mind numbing distractions. And I'm not like, man, I'm going to love my wife better after I watch this. It hasn't helped. I don't know about you. So one thing I would suggest, if we want to invest in our marriages, we need friends, men, we need to put our phones away. We need to take a break. I don't want you two two years of like being on social media ever increasing, it has not done wonders for my soul. So that's just one negative. Put our put our phones away, and especially to the guys. We need to put our phones down. We need to pray for each other, pray with each other. It's just a, a list of, man, take one thing and run with it. Read your Bible together, date your spouse, never quit dating your spouse, <laughs> communicate with them. And again, and again, I'm throughout a week. I'm like, man, I, sometimes I'm like, I haven't communicated with my wife while well, we got I got to stop. We're not on the same page. Laugh, laugh with your spouse. Don't we all need more laughter these days? Like not laugh at, laugh with You get into trouble. If you heard that wrong, <laughs> look for ways to serve your spouse. Cause you think about love, love defined by Jesus. Christ is this act of service, laying one's life down for another. How can we lay down our life for a husband? For a wife, study your spouse, study your spouse. We're always changing. How much you my my wife, she, she used to love Kit Kat chalk bars. And at some point she's like, I don't like Kit Kat anymore. I'm like, what? You don't like Kit Kat anymore? She likes we she likes, I don't even know what it's actually called, but it's like has pop candy in it that pops in your mouth, chocolate. We call it poppy chocolate. I don't even know what the actual name is. <laughs> but study your and could, I could actually be wrong. I, I should have asked her beforehand to double check. But so because so, that's a thing. We live in an ever-changing world, right? And we're always changing. So we need to keep studying each other. Be quick to forgive. I think that's, that's probably a huge one. Not probably, for sure. Be quick to forgive. And another thing, celebrate anniversaries. I'm going to keep beating that drum until the dead die. Celebrate anniversaries. The world's like marriage, terrible. Ah, wait, don't do it. Don't tie the knot. God is very good. And if it's very good, then friends, we should make a big deal. Every time that year comes around and celebrate, do something, let people know. Yeah, I love my wife. I love my husband. This is what we're doing to celebrate in the beginning. God created marriage. He defined it. He set the parameters around it, but friends, I I really want us to see. So now I just want to think spiritually. So God created marriage between a man and a woman. God made us relational beings for himself. God, the the understanding of marriage is used throughout the Old Testament to show God's love. All throughout, there's a book, The Song of Songs, and it's just like, if you're married, read it. If you're not, like maybe stay away from The Song of Songs. It's a very vivid book of love between a man and a woman, but the church for the longest time, like that's the love of Christ. Because if you're talking about love within a marriage, that's Christ. God used love marriage language to always refer to his relationship with Israel, his covenantal love to them. Just one place. I want to bring your attention to Isaiah 54 verse five. I'll just read it for you. It says for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy one of Israel is your redeemer. But all throughout this picture of God being the husband and the wife being Israel. And yet Israel is not faithful but God was so merciful and kind and, and always uh, kept his love for Israel, even though he punished Israel in time. But in the Old Testament, all throughout that picture is used. But I want to see that picture now in the New Testament. If you just turn with me to uh, Ephesians 5.31. Ephesians 5.31 to 32. That whole, this whole passage in Ephesians, I think you could read, Obviously 522 to 33, I want us to see marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Paul writes in Ephesians 531, therefore, you've heard this before, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul quotes there from Ephes- or Genesis 2, but he says this, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So Paul said, okay, I see what God did on creation in day six. He says, this mystery is profound, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. Look at Ephesians five twenty-five: Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a, this amazing picture for any one of us who would like, Well, wow, I, I see myself. I'm a sinner before a holy God. I, I bring nothing to the table, only my brokenness, but I'm going to bow my knee to Jesus Christ and you, you enter in, you're forgiven by him. And Jesus Christ gave his life for sinners on a cross and everyone who would come in, he refers to in scripture as, as the church being the bride of Christ. That, that intimate Picture of marriage, love between a man and a woman. What does Paul say? This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Even think God created marriage on day six as he created on day six of creation. He had in mind, this is going to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus' love for sinners redeemed. How amazing is that? And friends, this picture of Christ in the church Marriage is carried all the way through the New Testament into the Book of Revelation. I just want to bring that to your attention as we close Revelation nineteen six to nine. This is the after the fall of Babylon, the, the wicked world system. Revelation nineteen verse six, John sees this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Again, this time spiritually, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time in Revelation. Are are you coming? Will you be there? Are you part of Christ's bride? You believed in Jesus Christ that you'll be... In anticipation, every time we take the Lord's Supper, one day we'll be taking the marriage supper of the Lamb, all gathered together. What a picture that is. So I think even as in, in Genesis chapter 2, as we see God creating marriage, a picture of the gospel to come, Jesus' love for the church, and then a picture ultimately of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the redeemed together with Jesus Christ. Marriage is good, great, in fact, but it's pointing, I think, to something so much better, the love of Christ for the church. God made us relational beings, and so we, through Christ, would have a relationship with him. That's the thing. We were made to be a relationship with God, but we know sin and brokenness entered in. But through Jesus Christ, the the relationship we are made for can be restored and we can walk with God, our father loved by Christ, the son filled with the Holy spirit. Praise the Lord for marriage. Praise the Lord for day six of creation. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Marriage is very good. Amen. If you want to bow with me, I'll close this word in prayer. Oh, Holy Father, Lord, I can't get excited enough about the goodness of marriage. I pray that we would get more excited about marriage in our lives, whether we're married or not, that we would speak uh, with more reverence about it, that we would proclaim how good it is. I thank you so much though, Lord, how you, you created that, but you use that as a picture for your love for the church. Lord, that is, it's past, it's beyond my knowing, but I pray you would seal that in our hearts, give us a greater understanding of your great love for us, revealed on your work on the cross. Oh, Lord, that we would know you more, ever increasing, is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. In in a moment here, just in finishing, we'll be Uh, singing that hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And I pray it could be a response to the Lord, a prayer, that God would be our vision uh, today and in the days moving forward. If you want to stand just as, as they prepare, we'll sing together. soon.